0: thinking together about Joseph. And we're uh, the fourth one in the series, Influencer, because Joseph was an ordinary person uh, that rose to great influence for God's kingdom purpose. And uh, we've been reminding ourselves over the weeks that Joseph's story is our story. We are those ordinary people that under God's leading guidance, anointing, uh, with his enabling, it is his will for our lives that we become influencers for his kingdom. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and and the light of the world. It is in God's heart for you and I to be kingdom influencers wherever he has placed us. And as Joseph, as we'll see over these coming weeks, learnt to be obedient in all kinds of different circumstances, so he would eventually quite uh, beautifully rise in God's kingdom agenda to be the right man at the right place at the right time. It all began, though, you'll remember, with a dream. God placed a dream in Joseph's life of what one day would be true, and God puts dreams and visions and plans and purposes in our lives that we can begin to see, even if in shadow, that calls us forward into what God's asking of us. But ironically... It was Joseph's family that were those that were in danger of squashing the dream even before it got underway. No sooner had Joseph had his dream, we heard last time, uh, two weeks ago, about Joseph's father Jacob and how unhelpful, to say the least, he had been. Instead of encouraging Joseph and fanning that into flame, he left Joseph exposed uh, in the family, and this week... Uh, we think about Joseph's brothers. Those that should have cheered him on, that should have celebrated what God was doing within him, did in fact quite the opposite. And Joseph has been sent to his brothers, and we find him in verse 15, wandering around the fields, I guess wondering what to do. He doesn't really want to disobey his father and uh, not go to his brother's, with uh, food and supplies for them but at the same time he must have dreaded going into a field with his brothers who hated him. Maybe he was praying, longing, hoping that he'd never find his brothers and some uh, chap finds him wandering in the fields. Uh, What or who are you looking for? And then verse 19 we pick up our story this morning but they saw him in the distance. Of course they saw him why do they see him in the distance so clearly? Because he's got his fancy coat on. He's got his coat that, is, that said to his brothers, I'm more special than you are. You need to work to earn your living, but I'm so important, I don't need to lift a finger myself. And as they saw him, a lifetime of hatred erupted in their hearts. All the anger, bitterness, jealousy, resentment, everything that they'd harbored over all of the years erupts and these feelings pour out. And their actions are cold, calculated, callous, in fact quite chilling. How do innocent, in inverted commas, little babies, become murderers? How did these brothers, great-grandchildren of the great man of faith, Abraham, become so full of hatred that they would kill their little baby brother? Where does that level of feeling in our world come from? Good questions. In a few moments, the plan gets modified. Joseph isn't killed, but he's stripped. Of his clothes and thrown into a cistern where he would surely die. They would dig out in the limescale rock uh, big, massive um, containers for water, narrow necks at the top, and big, deep containers from which they would store and draw water. Verse 24 tells us that this particular container was empty, and Joseph is left there in the desert without food or water uh, in order to die. We get an insight here into that important question. What happens here is brutal. It's an example of how ugly one human being's behavior to another can become. In fact, later on in the story, when the brothers talk to one another about what happened, they said this. We, we saw how distressed he was, that's Joseph, when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not Listen. So there is Joseph begging and pleading for his life, but they take him, they strip him, and they throw him into this cistern. The language is is quite brutal and very uh, blunt as well, quite literally. They stripped, took, dumped, then ate, it says. The word stripped is the one used of, of stripping a wild animal. Once you've killed it, you strip the flesh off its back. The word dumped was that of dumping a body that's already dead, and then they sat down to eat. Where did the food come from? Joseph. And so there they are, presumably maybe still within earshot of their brother's cries, eating the food that he came with. How does a human being get so out of control? And you don't need me to rehearse examples. You can switch on the the, the television or read a newspaper every single day to see acts of atrocities that we probably ask in our hearts, how does a human being harbour that much evil to behave in that kind of way? And the answer is here in these pages. These were ordinary people like you and me who had harbored a jealousy, stored up a hatred, held on to a bitterness, until that cauldron of emotion exploded into action. They'd allowed what Jesus described as a bad tree, it's an understatement, isn't it, to grow in their inner lives. Jesus says you will end up bearing the fruit that you grow within your heart. These men had allowed a tree of hatred and jealousy. If you missed the early, um, uh, I was going to say episodes, what do you call them? A a series, sermons in in this series, you you will know that there was this incredible hatred within Joseph's family. And so they'd grown up with it, and they'd harbored these deep, strong-rooted emotions. And what had happened? Instead of dissipating or easing over time, they'd become fueled and they'd got bigger and they'd got stronger. The roots of how they felt towards Joseph had got deeper and grown taller. The tree had grown taller as the roots had got deeper. uh, And eventually, it was only a question of a matter of time before the fruit of the tree that they'd grown in their lives manifested itself. You see, if they dealt with it when it was just a tiny twig... They probably could have handled it by themselves, but they'd allowed the tiny twig of bitterness to grow week in, week out, month, month, year, year, until a massive tree of bitterness was now in their lives, and the fruit was inevitable, and it was, they were unable to uproot it, and it had become, for them, out of control. Is that true? For the benefit of those online, the screen says, harbouring bitterness, holding on to a grudge, nursing anger, are all paths towards murder. It's surely a huge over-exaggeration, isn't it? And I trust that you're not about to murder anyone. But whenever we allow even the twig of bitterness to begin to take root in our lives, the Bible says we're on the same path, heading in the same direction as those who eventually commit murder. Can you remember what Jesus said? You've heard it said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that people who are angry with their brother or sister will be subject to the same, that's what it's saying, judgment. From a godly perspective, the person who goes on to commit the crime is no more guilty than the person who is on the first step of the pathway. It's why Jesus says being angry and not dealing with it is the same as murder. It's, it might be a small apple tree, And one day it will be a big apple tree and it will produce apples. It might be a small tree of bitterness, but a small tree becomes a big tree, which in its time will naturally produce its fruits. The Bible reiterates it later, perhaps in even sharper language. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a... Oh my word. Oh my word. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer... So the path that leads to murder is to hold a grudge, to, to, to hang on to a bitter root. And you might say it's only a little root, it's only a little twig. But little twigs become great oak trees. Little apple trees become big apple trees. And you would expect an apple tree to produce apples. And it's no more unlikely that a bitter root will in time produce bitter fruit. And of course... It's not just sometimes over a period of time in our own lifetime. Some of the hatred we see going on in the world today is the result of generations of hatred. The roots and the trees have been growing for generations A nation that hates another nation or prejudice of all kinds that that have not just been confined to our own lifetime, but we've inherited all that the generations before us have, have established in themselves and therefore in terms of our culture established within us and it very quickly gets out of control. But we see it in our personal lives as well, don't we? When someone has just exploded and a reaction seems significantly out of proportion to the immediate course. What are we seeing? We're seeing that a tree has been allowed to grow and in time the tree bears that fruit. Perhaps a different metaphor is that of a volcano which on the outside looks like any other mountain and uh, we can look like any other mountain but deep inside there can be molten lava that's hot and bubbling and stirring deep within us. From the outside there's nothing to see but Inside, there is so much more going on. And then suddenly, one day, almost maybe inexplicably, Joseph wasn't coming to give them a bad time. He was giving them supplies in order that they might survive. But if the molten lava is there, swilling around on the inside, then suddenly, inexplicably, sometimes out of nowhere, it will burst forth and the lava will flow down the mountain. When feelings and hurts are left unchecked, they bubble away on the inside. It's like that in marriages, isn't it? Karen and I have been married for 25 years, and so I've been taking a bit of interest in people that have been married for a long time. Uh, You're right, we got married really young. I know you're thinking it. Sometimes it's good to speak out what you're all thinking. Okay, Uh, How were they allowed to get married that young? It's amazing, isn't it? Special exception. But, but it's made me acutely aware, when I've heard, um, of people separating. How long have they been together? They've been together 19 years. What? They've been together 28 years. Recently, 35 years. Well, I'm thinking, you muppets, you've made it through 35 years. Why on earth are you walking out on it now? Well, what's going on when, when that happens? The strange thing about rows in a marriage is that if we can learn to resolve them, then two days later we can't remember what the row was about. This is loving against the odds. If we can't resolve conflict, then two days later we still can't remember what started it, but the bitterness goes on, rolling down the years. Is that how you say it in this part of the world? The years, the years. How do you say it? It The bitterness goes rolling on through every grouping of 12 months. Some time ago... "'A man said to me, I want to leave my wife. "'I asked him what had led to this. "'I was expecting the reasons I'd heard many times, "'an affair, sexual difficulties, or a long-term conflict "'that had finally caused the love to die. "'I will never forget his reply. "'He said, when I got home from night shift last night, "'she was out, and had left for my main meal "'an unopened tin of pie filling. "'I said, you're not serious?' You can't be leaving your wife over that. But he was adamant that canned meal had ended his marriage. But it hadn't. It was rather that incident built on a thousand others, all unresolved, that had just rolled down the years. It's any relationship, of course, isn't it? We see it in churches. We see it in our own church. Sometimes I get overwhelmed by the things that people are holding on to when people won't work with someone or someone's still upset with someone or someone's still holding on to a hurt or a grudge or a bitterness. And if we were to draw the relationships, picturally all the black lines, oh my word, the things we hold on to, people of God. We allow these little trees to grow in our lives. Molten lava. When it spills down the mountain, it affects everybody, doesn't it? And it's not sometimes when the molten lava is allowed to get to work in our lives that we're just angry about the specific issue. Anger spills everywhere. That's why we say, don't kick the cat. It's not that the cat's done anything. It's just that once you start, well, sometimes it has. I hate cats, really. Sometimes (laughs) cats, sometimes you're quite right. Cats, they have done something, really. don't kick the cat, um, no, I'm not going to say that, <laughs> but, but it spills everywhere, doesn't it, and, and instead of just being angry about the one thing, or the one person, before you know it, you, you're starting just to be angry, you know, and sometimes we say uh, about people, that person is angry about such and such, and then sometimes we say, that person's just an angry person, Because it's spilling out all over the place. Uh, And what do you do? You think twice about living by a volcano and you think twice about hanging about with an angry puss and it sabotages relationships. So so bitterness is like, the bitterness tree is like a weed in the garden of our lives that if we don't uproot it, will take over our whole lives, will take over the whole garden. And, And some of you gardeners will say, don't plant that, it'll take over your whole garden. And I say, will it? I didn't plant it. It's just there. And maybe we think that about bitterness too. It just sort of appears in our lives. We, we get caught off guard and before we know it we're, we're nursing a grudge, we're nursing a hurt and, we're, uh, uh, and, and, and suddenly it's a trunk. So what do we do? How do we deal with it? How do we respond? A few thoughts then when bitterness is near. Firstly, go and sort it. Go and sort it. If you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're singing your worship songs, if you've rocked up in church, if you're taking communion, if you're about to meet in your small, whatever it is, remember if you're and your brother or sister has something against you, go now. Go now. There's a there's an immediacy about it. Don't put it off. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. It's something about getting on with it, about dealing with it, because if there's a little tiny weed in the garden, you can reach down and, and pull it up. If you leave it to grow, it will demolish all the other flowers around it. It will get entangled in the roots of other plants. It will push over your fences. The roots will get so big, they'll get under your house, and your house will fall down. And it's exactly the same in our lives. Go and sort it, deal with it quickly, in your anger do not sin, and you've got to get rid of anger quite quickly in order not to sin in your anger, so do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, in other words, deal with it in the day, don't don't let it carry on for the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day, before you've forgotten what you were angry about, but you just know you're still angry, you're angry enough to leave out a tin of pie filling for your husband when he comes home after a night shift, if it's unresolved. So, don't go to bed angry. Stay up and fight. Deal with it. Get it sorted. Get it fixed. Process the emotion. It's hard to deal with, but it builds and it just gets harder. It's no wonder that the Bible says again and again and again, in almost every discipline, every aspect of the Christian life, you've got to take courage. Because it takes courage. But if we don't take the courage in the early days to to root it out, to confront it, to sort it out, it will build and it will grow and its roots go everywhere. So when bitterness is near, go and sort it. And if we did do that, then this next one wouldn't even be an issue. When bitterness is near, stop reliving it stop reliving it. We relive it in our thoughts. Someone hurts us, we feel angry, cross, we feel bitter about it, and we think about it. We lie awake at night, and we think about it. And we allow it to take a stronghold, a hold on us in our thoughts. And some of you will know how easy it is to get into a pattern where you can remember in absolute detail all the people that hurt you when and where, as if it only happened yesterday. It's why people will come and they will talk about something that happened two decades ago, but they talk about it like it's right there, right now, because in their thoughts, in their mind, it is still right there, right now. Now, if you can't remember what it is you went up the stairs to get, but you can remember who hurt you two decades ago, there is a problem. And that's just for those of you in bungalows. <laughs> we, we create these thought patterns in our heads that become really strong. The Bible talks about it being a stronghold in the way that we think. Love is patient. Love is kind, doesn't envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. The other way we relive hurts is not just to think about them. Sometimes that's not enough for us. We want to talk about them. Not to the people that have hurt us, which is absolutely the right thing to do, but we want to talk to other people about it so that they can prayerfully support us. Do you know, simply saying, I'm sharing this so that you can pray for me, does not give us carte blanche to share what we like with other people. We need to talk to the right people about the right things, and then we need to zip it up. Because what does talking about it do? Talking about it not only draws others into the conflict, remember that sermon uh, a while ago when we drew up on the chart the way it infects all kinds of different relationships, but when we speak it out, it takes on a power that it didn't have before we spoke it out. Speaking things out is really powerful. It's why uh, the, the Bible uses words to describe the power that takes place when Jesus comes in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the word, So God becoming flesh, becoming real, was described as a word because words create a reality. And when we start speaking stuff out, we create an even greater reality, even if it isn't the truth. Now, these shepherds, what have they talked about night after night? They're angry with their father about that cloak. They're furious with Joseph about the way that he was insensitive about the dreams. And they've rehearsed their anger one with another. They've reinforced one with another how cross they are and how perfectly justifiable it is for them to be cross. Because we'd all be cross if that was what our father was like and that is how our brother behaved. And we've all done that. We've all taken part in conversations that have served only to fuel the wrong feelings and attitudes that are within us. It's like throwing fertilizer where the weeds are growing so that they grow faster and the fruit gets nearer to that moment of it being produced. We've all kept records of wrong, excuse me, of wrongs, storing them up, reviewing them with others, and we find that there's a common um, uh, kind of strength to our relationship in the way we feel about other people. And all the time, the little twig is growing into a trunk, and on its way to becoming a mighty oak. Words have power, they create a reality, and we need to take hold of them in the name of Jesus. That's what Paul was on about. He says there's all kinds of arguments and pretensions, all kinds of thought patterns that go on in your head, all sorts of things that you think are true, and you need to bring them down in the name of Jesus. And we need to help each other do that. And we need to confront one another, rather than reaffirm one another sometimes, in our anger and our bitterness as it comes So, we need to go and sort it. We need to stop reliving it. And finally, we need to guard uh, against it. You see, it sneaks up on us. Bitterness, hurts, resentments, all that stuff sneaks up on us. It takes us off guard. It catches us when we're uh, not ready. And before we know it, we've allowed it to take root in our lives. Again, back to the gardening metaphor, which I know so much about. You have to go out very often and get the weeds up. I tried leaving our garden to the Lord and he made a right mess of it. So, so I've got to take it back. He's unable to look after it. If you don't go out again and again and again, then it's the same in our, if we don't sift our lives again and again and again, these little roots of bitterness start to take hold and we're stepping on the path that takes us to the place of murderous in. you need to guard against it be on your guard stand firm in the faith be courageous and be strong do everything in love these brothers had allowed sin bitterness is a sin they might well have been wronged jacob was probably a rubbish dad to them too joseph was highly insensitive rude and probably arrogant as a 17 year old we all would have wanted to have slapped him but that doesn't make their response right. Bitterness is always a sin, however justified it is. And so we need to be on our guard, because sin devalues people. Look, look in these verses, <laughs> here comes the dreamer, here the mocking, the contempt, the, 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 oh, just brush him off the bottom of our shoe type of feel about Joseph. Joseph was a joke. In his eyes, he had no worth. He'd become nothing more than an object of their scorn. Sin uh, devalues people, but then it breeds um, deception. And as we allow the root of bitterness to take root in our lives, not only do we start devaluing people, but it creates a deception within us. The way we respond to people, the way we behave immediately after uh, uh, them seeing Joseph come and they decide what they're going to do, they then decide how they're going to lie about it. And every sin, it seems to me, leads to another sin, which is usually the sin of lying. Either to somebody else, or we end up lying to ourselves. So they decided they were going to lie to uh, Jacob, their father, about what had happened to Joseph, but but also they were lying to themselves. Um, uh, A little bit later on, at the end of verse 20, not on the screen, it says, we shall see what will become of his dreams. In other words, the brothers begin to think to ourselves, well, we haven't really done anything too bad here because he was going on about these dreams and how wonderful he is. And if those dreams are true, then what we do to him won't really matter because the dreams will come true anyway. And they just begin to ease their way into that place of justifying themselves. And that's the way sin deceives us, isn't it? We justify our behavior towards others because you'd feel like that if they'd done that to you. And if you'd gone through what I've gone through, you would be feeling angry too. And we justify our right to hold on to things, to hold on to attitudes that are uh, ungodly and against his will for our lives. Justify, justify, justify. And it's so easy for us in those moments to suddenly begin to allow something that we would say is totally unacceptable to become acceptable in our lives. Are you pretending an attitude is perfectly acceptable when it isn't, when it isn't? It's so easy. The Bible is littered with examples of people that are giving the reason, even as they do it, why it's okay and why they are the exception. Maybe there is something in our lives that we're justifying that we're pretending about, we're kidding ourselves, it's not as bad, we're appeasing our conscience, and so on. So sin devalues, sin deceives, it also is what we don't do. Poor Reuben thought he would fix it and save the day, but he was way too half-hearted in it, and in the end he didn't save Joseph in the way that he had hoped. He intended to go back and to Lift Joseph out of the system. He was the eldest son. He could have taken the other brothers on. They should have listened to him in a hierarchical society where he technically was in charge. But he blew it. He was too soft. He was too passive. He um, uh, keeled over to peer pressure. And so, another deception. I think. Sometimes instead of, um, in, instead of acting out of the bitterness that we feel, uh, we, we we become uh, withdrawn. Uh, we become We isolate ourselves from others, we become distant from others it 's the same fruit of bitterness as being verbose and angry and cross with people and why because sin becomes comfortable, having a bitter spirit in our lives becomes comfortable we become used to it it 's what we know i 've always felt that way about that person, but, and it no longer bothers us. no longer bothers us that there are some people we just don 't stand can 't stand uh, we've become comfortable and easy. Uh, with it. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. In some uh, versions, it gets perhaps to the uh, better expression of the word. His brothers were content. They sold their younger brother into slavery. They've killed an animal to take back to their father, to tell their father that their, his precious son is dead. And the brothers are going, hmm, seems all right. Seems like a good day. They were at peace, in other words. Is there some aspect of our lives, my life, where I've become at peace when I should be at a lot of dis-ease? dis-ease. Content. Imagine that. That's the deceit of sin. And of course, it goes without saying that sin is very destructive. And that's what we see unfolding here. By the end of the chapter, Joseph is a slave, his brothers are living a lie, and his father's world is shattered. Wherever we allow bitterness to grow, we align ourselves with sin that devalues, that deceives, that ultimately and fundamentally destroys. No wonder the Bible says again and again and again, get rid of all bitterness. You've got to deal with it, says Genesis 37, or it will deal with you and your family. And the reason we don't get rid of it is that it has such a power over us that we feel powerless in the face of it. Talk about being out of control. We will acknowledge in our most honest moments that I can't help the way I feel. You know what I'm talking about. I just can't help it. And then we need to go right back to the beginning, which is Jesus on a cross who took all of the rubbish, all of the bitterness, all of the pain, all of the yuck, all of the wrong and anger and hatred that, that, that is all over the world. And he invites you and I to see him on that cross and to know at the depth of our being that we have been forgiven everything. And so how dare we hold on to unforgiveness towards somebody else. And it's there at the cross that you and I receive a power to release others. Whereas perhaps for many years, all we've been able to do is hold on to them because I'm still so angry. And there is no other medicine, no deeper antidote, no more powerful reality than the cross of Christ. To touch and change our hearts. The main theme of the prophetic words this morning, before we uh, we we began, we're, were all about our need to take responsibility for our relationship with God to be intentional. And one of the intentionalities that we need is to go to the cross every day, and to remind ourselves how much we've been forgiven. And so to release the power of forgiveness to others in our lives and in all our relationships. And so we're going to gather around the communion, we're going to worship, we're going to gather around the cross. Because this is not about us going out today and striving to be more forgiving. You will get just past lunch before you feel you've let yourself down. We need the forgiving power of Jesus to flow through our lives we need his grace in bucket loads that we might take that grace to others if not if it remains unchecked then we see the disasters of Genesis 37 repeated again and again and again and you know some of us are weary we're weary in our homes, we're weary in our marriages, perhaps we're weary in our workplace of this just cycle of, of, of bitterness going round and round and round. And today Jesus says, look, come afresh to the cross. Let's break the cycle in my name.